Welcome to the Pactum. This is Pat Abendroth, and on today's episode, we are answering your questions. It's episode 114. It is a Pactum responsum, responding to your good questions, questions about law and gospel, questions about the Reformation Study Bible, about lordship salvation, about our journey, about confessions, sola scriptura, seminaries, and all sorts of other goodies. I am alone today yet again, feeling oh so lonely, so it is a Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver. The Lone Ranger. Our first question for today is from Justin. He says, I first want to thank you for your podcast, especially getting the gospel right. That joint venture that we did with Scott Clark, Mike Abendroth, and the Theocast brothers, who are not brothers. Uh, he says, what a relief the actual gospel is as a recovering gospel student and teacher. Yes, this is a recovery group for such people. Justin, he says, I still have moments of non-clarity about this distinction that I have come to love. John fifteen ten. for instance, is this not a conditional statement or is Jesus being contrasted here as the perfect law keeper or uh, keeper versus our failed obedience. I'm having trouble sorting this one out. Please help. Well, we'll do our best to try to offer some help, Justin. And I would want, respond by saying we should probably look at the text. John 15, 10, Pactum listeners, how would you respond? If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, I think the first thing we should say is we agree. <laughs> That's true. Whatever Jesus says is good and true. And we would want to say amen to that. But from there, what we would want to observe is John 15 in its greater context. Uh, this is not somehow salvation by obedience because then the gospel wouldn't make sense. The gospel, according to John, would not make sense. The name Jesus wouldn't even make sense. So what we would want to do is see it in its context. And if you're united to Christ by faith, uh, there's going to be fruit in your life. You're joined to him. And so we would say, yes, you're going to do the right thing because you are in Christ. Uh, if not, you're, you're damned and you're, you have a new desire. Um, and when Jesus says, this is what I want you to do, what do you do now that you have a new heart? Now that there's no condemnation, you say, yes, Lord, I would want to do what you want me to do. And when you say love, I love and that would be a summation of his commandments. And so we love because he loves us first. Keep that in mind. But we do, in fact, love. And if there were no love, there would be no fruit. And it would look a lot like we're not united to Christ by faith. It would look a lot like we don't have the regenerative spirit of God who bears fruit in our life, which would include love if we go to Galatians. And so don't be afraid of the conditionality of it. The reality is, if there is no love, if there is no abiding, uh, then we, we don't belong to Christ. We don't belong to Christ by our perfect obedience, but if we do belong to Christ by faith, there is going to be the abiding. There is going to be the loving. Uh, it's just the natural part of things. And I suppose we could think of other texts in John. I like to keep it uh, together. You know, Jesus says some some things that are hard things, and some people leave. They, they, they don't want to do what Jesus says. They don't want to believe what Jesus says about himself, and some of them leave. Uh, and John chapter six, for example, John six, six, six is easy to remember. So there are those who attach 
themselves to Jesus as they're even referred to as disciples, but they don't continue on. It's not that they lost their salvation, but they didn't see him for who he really is. So just keep it in context um, and don't be afraid. Next one from Gene. I've recently, uh, I've recently started listening to the Pact of Podcast. He says, I discovered you by way of John and Justin at Theocast. Awesome. My question is simply curiosity as to why the word journey is anathema to you folks at the pactum. Please forgive my feeble attempt at reformed humor. Okay. Well, he does say he's been on a quest. Great job, Gene, for being on a quest and not a journey toward a reformed theological view um, for some years and appreciate your podcast a great deal. So thank you for your hard work to spread the gospel and Orthodox Christianity. You are welcome. Thank you for kind words. Oh, the thing that is the journey. Journey is a band, right? And it's not even the real journey anymore because they don't have Steve Perry, the lead singer. Uh, it's, it is kind of funny to laugh and con- to consider church names. Well, maybe what we should do is say, don't say journey, say, hmm, adventure, say uh, expedition. That sounds better. Exploration. That sounds kind of good. Uh, I looked up the synonyms campaign. Sounds a little militant. Maybe we shouldn't go there, but (laughs) adventure sure sounds good. Oh, there's nothing wrong with a journey, but when things become used and uh, sort of become sappy and sentimentalized, it just gets a little silly. It gets a little embarrassing. Um, when I was uh, reading this question, I was not at my, in my home state. I wasn't at home. I was in Colorado and within, within just close distance, I just typed in journey and it was all these churches that popped up at least three different journey churches where I was. And it just seems kind of cheesy, seems kind of lame. So, uh, church names by, by the way, if, if I were going to start a planet church, I don't know what I would call the church. I would go for something really maybe mundane when, you know, when you try to pursue relevance, you become irrelevant pretty fast. And so I, I was even reading some of the, the descriptions of the, of the journey kind of churches to, to my son. And he was laughing his head off at how silly that would be. So it seems like right now your church name has to have water in it or, um, timber in it or relevant in it or journey in it. I, I don't know. Maybe we should call, I, I wanted to start a church and call it skull Bible church because Calvary is skull. But that was back when I was in Harley Davidson's and that kind of stuff. And they used skulls for their campaigns. All right. We better move on to the next thing. Now that we've got our journey figured out. This next question comes from Tim. He says, thank you so much for your podcast. It's so helpful, especially for those who have made the exodus from lordship and the lordship doctrine. He doesn't mean uh, the lordship of Christ because we think that is important because Jesus is Lord, but he's talking about a certain kind of doctrine. Uh, He says he's been trying to to fire hose, truly reform theology. Uh, and so that's, that's cool. I like the imagery. That's not journey imagery. Fire hose imagery is kind of cool. Uh, he asks, is the Reformation study Bible a good resource? Would you recommend it? Thank you for your message, Tim. In response, we would want to say we do like the Reformation study Bible. You can look at episode or listen to episode 75 with Chris Larson, who is the president of Ligonier. And we got to talk with him and had a wonderful conversation about the history and significance of the Reformation study Bible. I do like it. I have it right here in front of me, as a matter of fact. And one little, uh, 
nice thing about the Reformation Study Bible are some of the articles in the back. There's an article about interpreting the Bible with the Bible, Scripture with Scripture. There's a good article on hermeneutics. There's an article on apologetics. There are some really great things back in the back that are helpful. There's one on covenant theology. And so I utilize those because they're to the point. They're simple, but not simplistic. And so it's great for that. Uh, one thing to know about the Reformation Study Bible, uh, in addition, is you know different people did different books of the Bible. So as far as the notes are concerned, I know R.C. did James, um, but you know I think it, it has strengths and weaknesses. Overall, I like it. It's a Bible I keep close by, so I would recommend it. But there's nothing replaces uh, the Bible itself, and with you thinking clearly, uh, Tim, about simple biblical theological categories like law and gospel. And so I, I love the notes, but I don't rely on the notes. If it's what God requires, it's law. If it's what God graciously provides, it's gospel. And I think we need to remember that when we're reading our Bible and even using commentaries or, or study notes or things like that. And so keep that in mind. A good resource when it comes to this would be Christless Christianity because he deals with law and gospel. Another good resource I think that would help um, would be episode 100 we did on law and gospel. I think we called it Galospel. So I think those things might be helpful to you as far as resources are concerned. When it comes to the whole lordship salvation debate, uh, I think the book Christ the Lord, edited by Michael Horton, is really helpful because it sheds some some light and offers some more robust, more mature theological categories so we don't end up mixing law and gospel and ruining, ruining both of them. Law is good. Law is important. It's vital. We should preach the law of God, what God requires. And we should also preach, preach the gospel and understand the gospel, what God graciously provides through the substitutionary work of his son. And then we are called to follow God's law out of gratitude, out of obedience, the, the fruit of faith, if you will. But we don't want to confuse the two. And oftentimes, uh, sadly, some involved in the lordship position end up doing that. Oh, I just thought there's another good resource that just came to mind. And it was the series of articles that my brother, Mike Abendroth, did of No Compromise Radio that were posted on the Heidel blog. I think those were some of the most downloaded uh, articles uh, last year, and those were really well done. They're thoughtful, they're uh, biblical and historic. So check those out if you would. And we have another question today. Packham listeners, how would you answer this question from Jeff? Thank you for your work in the biblical leading of Omaha Bible Church. You're welcome. Um, labels, terms can be confusing. And more specific, I'm referring to covenant theology versus dispensationalism. So before I even go further, let me interject and say, uh, I think a person can be a dispensationalist and also affirm covenant theology. And by that, I mean covenant theology is dealing first and foremost with the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Therefore, we're in the realm of dealing with salvation and how salvation works. And typically that's not the case in dispensationalism, at least not anymore. In dispensationalism, we're talking about whether or not there's a future for ethnic or for national uh, geopolitical religious Israel. 
and whether or not that is distinct from the church. And so theoretically, and, and if you are a dispensationalist, I hope you affirm uh, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Uh, I have a book coming out here sometime later this month. We're recording in April of 2023 called Covenant Theology, and it engages dispensationalism and really articulates and unfolds this very thing. So sometimes you're told that these are totally separate realities. And in fact, they're not totally separate realities. So I'm going to keep going with Jeff's question. He says, I've listened to John MacArthur define dispensationalism in its simplest terms as a literal nation of Israel to be restored in the future and the following one, a literal rapture two, a literal tribulation three, a literal millennial millennial kingdom, Uh, forgetting the term dispensationalism. Is this your belief also? In response to that, uh, it is not my belief uh, because I don't think that there's a secret rapture that takes place that is distinct from the return of Christ, uh, which is why confessions throughout church history have said things like he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And so um, there, I believe in a rapture, but I don't think it's different or distinct. Uh, It's distinct and different in that it's good for you because you're in Christ and you don't face condemnation, but is it secret and different? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, Literal tribulation, sure, a literal tribulation, but the question is how long does it last and is it part of the life we're living in now, though it can get worse? Uh, Millennial kingdom. I think that the Lord's kingdom will have no end. It's not limited to a thousand years. It is a literal kingdom and it will last forever and ever would be my response. Now, if we want to tease this out a little bit, we could say, well, but doesn't it have to be a thousand year kingdom because the Bible says it's a thousand year kingdom and you can read in Revelation chapter 20 and it says a thousand years. And so you can look at the MacArthur Study Bible, which I just looked at, and it says a thousand is a thousand, basically, and it has to be literal. And uh, just by way of getting you to think about this, Jeff, uh, when I read in Revelation chapter four in the MacArthur Study Bible, the 24 elders, Jeff, guess how many the MacArthur Study Bible says uh, how many elders there are? Well, the text says 24 elders, but he says that's the church. And so uh, how does that work? And here's how it works. When you're dealing with numbers, it's complicated sometimes, especially in prophetic literature. Are these numbers meant to be literal or are they not meant to be literal? And uh, sometimes even the best Bible teachers say it's literal here, but it's not literal there. And our question should be, how did you make that decision? (laughs) Why is it that you're not being consistent with your literalism? And why is it that the Bible says uh, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills? So only a thousand? There are a lot more hills than just a thousand hills. We don't always take numbers literally. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But we might want to try to be consistent. In addition, uh, regarding these matters, uh, we have to think about Israel and, you know, what does the Bible say? Well, uh, the Bible has Israel as very important in the Mosaic economy and the temple and the sacrifices. But if I read the book of Hebrews, I have to say, I think those things that occurred before were types. They were shadows. uh, And those are realized in 
Jesus. Okay, so the the antitype or the fulfillment is Jesus. He is the spotless Lamb of God. And so to go backward and say, in the future, in the millennial kingdom, we're going to have a new temple built and we're going to have more animal sacrifices made. Uh, I, I don't think so. I think we're going back. That's regressive. That's not progressive. That's contrary to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're to never to return to what it was before. And so uh, I, what ruined my theology, and I think it actually helped my theology, but it cured me of a certain kind of dispensationalism because dispensationalism says there's going to be priests in the future and there's going to be a temple in the future and there are going to be animal sacrifices in the future. I have to say, you know what? Read the book of Hebrews, uh, and to have those things would be blasphemous. Uh, and to have those things would be a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate temple. Uh, in Ephesians 2.14, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down by the work of Christ. Well, if we're going to separate Jew and Gentile again because the church is secretly raptured and now we have the people of God, uh, Jew only, not Gentile, well, we've put the dividing wall back up. We've gone backwards. So check out episode five, which is an episode on Zionism. And I think it might be helpful uh, to you and also study the book of Hebrews. And it seems like we cannot go back to things. You had one other question about John MacArthur regarding uh, th- thinking he was a sola fide guy because we talked about him. His name came up when I was on with John and Justin on Theocast. And I'm thankful that John MacArthur is a sola fide guy. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. I watched him personally as a seminary student uh, standing boldly f- uh, against evangelicals and Catholics together because it was a compromise of the doctrine of justification. And that really helped me to learn about being brave. Uh, I'm grateful to him for that. With that said, I think sometimes when he's, so when he's speaking about Roman Catholicism or to Roman Catholics, it couldn't be clearer. So that's wonderful. But sometimes when you read writings that he's written and he's not writing to Roman Catholics or about Roman Catholics, it can sound like justification is by faith plus something that you do. And some of that comes out in the gospel according to Jesus. And uh, we would say, I would say, I think that's mistaken. So there's that. Next question comes from Barry. Barry, you have a great question here about being part of the local church community and then having people who were a part of your church family deciding to leave the church because of theological issues. And so when you're left and you have discovered that people are gone or you learn about people being gone, uh, it's hard to know. Uh, how do you respond? What do you do? And, and Barry says, how should a believing church member counsel someone who's been dramatically affected by this discovery, this discovery that people who you have loved and you've done ministry with, they have left over theological differences. And then Barry says, how do pastors deal with this? So let's consider this matter. Well, I'm at least glad when people leave over actual theological matters. So if you, if I, I think being a member of a church is a, a big deal. It's a formal kind of thing. It's I, I liken it to marriage, even though it's not exactly the same. The church is the bride of Christ. There is something serious, and even the metaphor is used. And, and there's accountability, and people are given to keep watch over your soul. And so people belong. And so I want it to be hard to leave a church. It, 
there's a there's a biblical basis for divorce uh, in remarriage, but it's not like it it should be happening as the norm or frequently. So for me to leave a local congregation and to break my membership and to go somewhere else, I would want it to be a big deal. I would want it to be a big theological matter. And when people leave the congregation where I'm a pastor, in one sense, it's easier when it's clearly a theological difference. It's a big theological difference. And so we must part ways. Hopefully it happens before they ever become a member because we're clear in our confession what it is we believe. But with all of that said, at least if it's objective and you say, well, yeah, that's right. You don't uh, affirm the full, you know, the humanity of Jesus or something like that. Well, we need to part ways. Um, that, that's certainly clear. That seems like kind of a, almost a silly one. But with this said, um, what, what do you say to people? Well, it's not. Um, I'm not free to air everybody's dirty laundry. I think sometimes when people leave the congregation, if I stood up on a Sunday and said, here's why so-and-so left, uh, maybe it would create more clarity and it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't leave any room for questions or suspicion or gossip. But at the same time, uh, it's not my calling and I don't have a biblical basis for standing up unless it's a church discipline kind of thing. Uh, in offering the specifics. And so it's hard. It's hard when people leave for unbiblical reasons or reasons that they somehow think are biblical that are not biblical. Hey, look, I know I'm not perfect and I don't pastor a perfect church. The elders of the congregation where I am are not perfect, but we really don't have anything to hide. And, uh, so many times when people leave, it's because they want to blame someone because of the behavior of, Maybe their spouse, they wanted the church to change their spouse and the church couldn't change their spouse or the church doesn't think it's their job or ministry to change their spouse. Uh, that is sometimes the case. Sometimes it's something else, but so many times it ends up being a matter of, well, we all like to blame. Uh, and so we'll say, we're going to leave the church because my kids have problems and the youth programs didn't fix my kids' problems or, or something like that. Sometimes we expect the church to answer all of our questions about everything in life. And we expect the church to offer solutions to everything and to provide, you know, uh, opportunities for everything. When in fact, the church's focus and calling is very lean. We are called to preach the law of God and the gospel of God. And we are called to uh, observe the sacraments. We are called to preach the word of God. We're not called to do a million and one other things. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't do those things. In fact, I think we should do those things primarily not in the church, the extra kinds of things. So it's hard when people leave. It's hard when people leave for bad reasons. How do pastors handle it? Well, it's the biggest heartache in my life. And sometimes it causes me to not want to be a pastor. Um, and it's a hard thing. But at the same time, I have to remember that Jesus was the perfect discipler. I'm not, but Jesus was the perfect discipler. Uh, and yet he was let down so many times. So it wasn't because of what he was doing wrong. Um, he was doing everything right. And yet uh, he had people uh, break his heart, if you will. And so why should I expect anything more? I know I'm not a perfect pastor or discipler. And so when I get burned and people say one thing for a while and then they say something else and turn on me, well, I guess um, 
they did it to my Lord. I guess they're going to do it to me sort of thing. So I have to keep that in mind. This is such a big deal that sometimes it makes me just not want to be a part of the church, to be honest, because getting burned by people who name the name of Jesus and it's painful and it's hurtful. And so sometimes I think I I don't even want to be a part of the church. I don't want to do this anymore. And then I have to remember that Jesus has the words of eternal life, John chapter six. And so where else should I go? Uh, I, I can't turn away from his bride, the church, because it's the body of Christ and he has the words of eternal life. And so I'm just going to continue on because that's the right thing to do. And it's what Jesus would want me to do. Okay, we better move on. Next question is from Kern. Hey, Kern, thanks for being a part of the Pactum verse. Uh, and your question is, do you know of any Bible studies of the benefits for uh, for a Christian on the new covenant? And Ah, Kern, I don't think I've ever read an actual book on the New Covenant, but the wonderful book on the New Covenant, and you can find good resources on this book that helps you to understand the New Covenant, I've already mentioned in this episode, and it's the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is wonderful, uh, and I, I can't stress enough how great it is to study the book of Hebrews. There's a great commentary by uh, Philip Edgecombe, if I'm saying it right, Hughes, um, that really is quite helpful. I really liked um, O'Brien's commentary, but they took it out of print because of some controversial issues. But that that is just a wonderful book, and I, I think you, you should dive into it, and I think you'll have a wonderful time studying it. And if you find some other great resources on the New Covenant that you benefit from, I've read some different things, but none really stand out to me. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, Kern. Next question comes from Eddie. Can you point me to a list of Book recommendations. Ooh, I like the question already. One that covers many of the topics you guys cover on the Pactum. Eddie, I would love to recommend books, and this is going to sound self-serving. And it sounds self-serving because it is. Oh, I kid. Um, but uh, as I already mentioned in the episode, a book called Covenant Theology is coming out shortly. It should come out in April of 2023. And so you'll be able to find it on Amazon. It'll be in Kindle and it should be an audio book as well, Lord willing. Uh, and it is, um, so it's basically my dissertation, but it's in book form. So you can look for it. Um, we'll announce it on the Pactum. Maybe we'll do a giveaway or something like that or a contest. So check that out. I think it will help you because in so many ways, what we talk about on the Pactum shows up in that book that's coming out called Covenant Theology. Uh, when it comes to law gospel and the law gospel distinction, I really appreciate the book by Michael Horton called Christless Christianity. I think you're going to get a lot of the stuff we talk about on the Pactum regularly in that book. I think there's even a chapter on law and gospel. Uh, you could read that little book called Sacred Bond by uh, Brown and Keel. It's very digestible, easy to access. I think uh, you would benefit from that greatly. You have a question. You do uh, point out here something about biblical theology that I've mentioned, and the book that you should check out on biblical theology would be by Keel, Zach Keel. You can listen to the episode where we interview Zach. He has a book called The Unfolding Word. You would find that accessible, helpful for study. You could even use it to teach a class, but it'll help you to get up to speed. One other resource I will recommend when it comes to books that we would recommend that 
our topics we cover, kind of how we think it's built in our DNA. And that would be a book by Dennis Johnson called Walking with Jesus Through His Word. The classic book on biblical theology is by Gerhardus Voss, but it's a little bit tough. So Walking with Jesus Through His Word by Dennis Johnson. All right, next one. Here we go. I really enjoyed episode 84. That was Roulette with No Compromise. And in that episode, uh, Roulette with No Compromise, uh, you highlight where I got several recommendations, pro and con, love the discussion uh, about the books on justification. And then you mentioned that you got a smoking deal. Uh, you didn't say smoking deal, but I will on Michael Horton's two volume set. Wow. five ninety nine on Kindle. I need that. I have the hard or the paperbacks right in front of me, but that's a, that's a great deal. And you said maybe it was above your pay grade. So no problem. I would check out John Fesco, J.V. Fesco's book on justification. It's also right before my little eyes. Uh, I'll pull it and see the subtitle. It is Understanding the Classic Reform Doctrine. John Fesco, it's a thick book. And so maybe what you want to do is, um, you know, choose a chapter and just dive in and, and you don't have to read the book from cover to cover, but that's really going to be a good one. We have an episode on Sola Fide. It's called Sola Fide, so justification through faith alone in Christ alone. That's episode 91. Time for a drink of my peach, it's not hibiscus, turmeric tea. Oh, that that tastes like peach turmeric tea. I was listening to a podcast not long ago and, and someone kept drinking the whole time. And it got a little old, made me thirsty. So I was distracted. So ho hopefully I didn't make you too thirsty and distract you. I won't do it again. I promise. Seth asks, I've been thinking through the 10 commandments lately, and I have questions about the third commandment. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Is it as simple as using the name of Jesus Christ or God in place of a curse word or to express frustration? Or is it something deeper than that? Are there other ways that we violate this commandment that we maybe don't realize? This is a commandment that I often hear offering opinions, differing opinions about, and would love a better understanding about what it is. So thank you for your question, Seth. I think what we should do probably is cheat. We're going to cheat by referencing the Reformation Study Bible because I have it in front of me because we had a question about it. So how about this for some insight? God's name is a gift of grace to Israel, and it is the name, not through an idol that Israel has access to God and worship. Okay, so there's that. It's God's name, therefore, is to be revered. This command forbids the use of God's name in false worship. How about that? For incantations or divination, as well as for attesting falsehood or speaking blasphemy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 58. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that God will hallow his name and Jesus hallows the Father's name on the cross. So there's a good simple resource and a good simple answer. So I think you're onto something. I think you're absolutely correct, Seth, that it's not only when you stub your toe uh, or you want to swear. Uh, it's not only that, but I would not do that. I think that would be a violation personally, but it can be more than that. It can be different than that. And let's even think in terms of when we say something to God or say something about God that we know is not true, uh, even in our own hearts. I've heard it said before that the ultimate taking the Lord's name in vain is claiming him as your savior when you've not really trusted in Christ. And that certainly would be naming his name 
even though you have not truly trusted in him. Karen says this, if we are in Christ fully justified and can do nothing to garner more or less favor from God, why does the Bible tell us our behavior pleases or displeases God? Is this anthropopathism? Wow, that's a mouthful. Uh, Well, think about uh, speaking in human terms, right? Anthropology. So is it using anthropopathic language in reference to God? I like what you're doing there, Karen, because God is uh, not a human being. God is the the infinite, eternal one, different from us. So I I think the first thing I want to say before I read the rest of your question is you're on to something there. So God is... God doesn't change. And so if, if he doesn't change, how could he be more happy sometimes and less happy other times? And so we do have accommodation. God uses language uh, and language we can understand to accommodate so we can have a better sense of who God is. So that, that's good for you to be thinking in those terms. Uh, you go on to say, Karen, uh, please help me better understand, especially because most people are trying to keep the imperatives of Scripture to appease God. I'm not antinomian. I know we obey God out of gratitude and grace. I know I'm being a wordsmith, but the word please is throwing me off. Thank you for considering this question. Well, thank you for your question, Karen. I like what you're grappling with. I like what you're trying to do here because we do want to please God. The Bible does teach such things. And I like it that you emphasize the fact, and I want others to hear, we want to please God out of gratitude. We're, we're fallen sinners. We're in Adam. We can't do anything that pleases him. No one does good. No, not one. But because we're in Christ, we want to do the right thing because of his grace shown to us. We want to love because he loved us first, as the Bible would say. It's the built-in logic of the Bible. So out of gratitude, we want to do good works and do the right thing. We should also remember that it's, it's good for us right? What's good for us is doing the right thing. And so we want to do what is good for us. We're made to love God and love neighbor, and we're made anew, certainly to do those things. Uh, By doing what's right, it glorifies God. And so doing what's right reflects the goodness and character of God, and that would please him. So we do please God. And if we and, and sometimes what we do displeases God. But you're right. Uh, always keep in mind there's accommodation. There's accommodating kind of language because uh, God doesn't change. Uh, and so there's a bit of a mystery there and how it works. But I think accommodation is, is quite helpful. And if you try to figure this out, you're probably going to have a mental breakdown. <laughs> So don't do that. Um, think what, what the Bible says is true. And so remember that, and it's good to please God out of gratitude unto him and exactly how that affects God. Well, in a way that, uh, is probably beyond our pay grade, praise the Lord, Karen. And that's why we worship him. Okay, we've got a final couple of questions. Uh, This is from Mitchell. I was introduced to your podcast at the beginning of your Sola series. I'm trying to understand your position better. So perhaps Mitchell doesn't hold to our position. Apologies that this is coming several weeks after your episode on this topic. But when did Sola Scriptura come into effect? Well, this this answer to your question, Mitchell, is coming quite quite some time later, let me say. Uh, So maybe I need to apologize. 
Uh, when did it come into effect? Was the Old Testament sufficient for the Jews of Jesus' day? Would the Israelites have had sufficiency in the five books of Moses? Would the Corinthians have only needed the Old Testament and their letters from Paul? These questions come about because the books of the Bible, as we have them today, aren't, uh, weren't compiled until significantly later on. Well, first of all, let's, I probably won't answer every piece of the question, but first of all, in response to this question about sola scriptura, we need to acknowledge some things. And the first thing we should acknowledge is that in Hebrews chapter one, we have this reference, this super important reference to God speaking and God revealing himself in various ways at various times. So he is a God of revelation, but there is a clear, distinct emphasis on finality. It says in, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And so, yes, there's been revelation, but there's a final sufficient revelation and the final sufficient revelation is in Christ. And I would add Christ and we have apostles because they're going to speak with the authority of Christ about the person and work of Christ. And so I would have that compliment, not contradict what Hebrews chapter one is saying. So there's definitely a statement of sufficiency. The whole book of Hebrews really is about sufficiency and we don't need more. We don't need another sacrifice. We don't need another priest. It's final. It's complete. And so I'll start there. Uh, even if I can't answer all of the nuances and all, and I don't have, have answers to all of the details, I have that. So we shouldn't be looking for some kind of new revelation because we have the ultimate revelation that came through Christ, early church recorded. We had the apostles writing scripture. So this is reasonable. This makes sense to have this. Uh, in addition, I would say, even the miracles that happened uh, during the time of Christ, they weren't normal. Uh, so if we, we back up and say, well, the miracles that happened during the time of Christ, they weren't happening before he came, at least not for a long time. There's a lot of quiet between, even, even when it comes to Revelation, when you read uh, the book of Exodus, unique things are happening. They'd been enslaved for 400 years and unique things were not happening. And now unique, special revelation kinds of things are happening. My point is, it wasn't the norm. It was the exception. And so when Jesus comes and casts out demons and does the things that he does, it's not the norm. It's actually something unique. Uh, think in terms of uh, the quiet time between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, that's a significant amount of time. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Should I do one more? Hundreds of years. And so we have this unique time. Apostles are unique by definition. They had to see the risen Christ. And so that's part of it as well. When it comes to uh, the books of the Bible, we do say that the scripture, scriptural writings were recognized as scriptural writings before there was any church council or anything like that. For example, the apostle Peter recognizes Paul's writings as scripture in second Peter. So, uh, and there were other writings that claimed to be, um, they were unique historic books. We had the apocryphal books uh, that were around that Jesus would have known about, but he didn't quote them authoritatively. Uh, and they were rejected by the church until the time of the Reformation. Uh, even before that, the Roman Catholic Church 
did not affirm them, but then they needed to, to try to promote and defend certain doctrines. So go back to that episode on sola scriptura, that we don't need new special revelation because it's tied to Christ and we don't need a new Christ and we don't need uh, something to improve upon him or his words or his work. Final question for today is going to be from Hunter. Hi, thank you so much for the podcast. I've loved listening to it over the past several months and I've benefited greatly on several of several episodes. Pat has mentioned that he has written an introduction to the church's confession of faith, second London Baptist confession. So as to help those who from a biblicist background to see the importance of confessional Christianity, is this introduction available online somewhere? And I think I have to confess this might be a pactum absolvum and not only a pactum responsum. I think we've probably have said before that we would make it available online and we probably have not done that Hunter. So we can email you a copy of that and it might be helpful. Otherwise you can go to Amazon and you can uh, look up Patrick Abendroth and you can find that second London confession and uh, order yourself a copy. I don't think it's very much money. I, th I think somebody told, told me that we lose money on those. So we need a new business plan, I guess, is what we need. That is going to be it for today's episode of the Pactum. This Pactum Responsum, it's episode 114. Thank you for listening. I hope, I have, hope we have Mike Grimes back with us next week. I know that we will, as a matter of fact. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to us, if you need resources, if you need some Pactum gear, any of that sort of thing, you want to ask a question, for the next, for the next Pactum Responsum, what you can do is you can email us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The Pactum. Mm -hmm.